The story of Edward Coles is a remarkable one. Loyal personal secretary to President James Madison, close associate of Thomas Jefferson, and governor of Illinois, he was a wealthy heir to a central Virginia plantation who turned his back on his home state out of a moral objection to slavery. He left his family's Virginia tobacco plantation in 1819 with a group of slaves and started the long trip west to Edwardsville, Illinois. He paused dramatically along the Ohio River on an emotional April morning to free those slaves and offer each family 160 acres of Illinois land of their own. Some continued to work for Coles in Illinois, while others were left to find work for themselves. Coles later became the second governor of that state. In Crusade Against Slavery, our speaker and his co-author detail Coles' remarkable life story and his role in the struggle to free all slaves. Bruce Carveth is a writer, editor, database developer, and independent scholar currently living in Charlottesville, where he is employed as a database developer with the University of Virginia Health System. He discovered the little-known story of Edward Coles around 1998 and joined with his writing partner, Kurt Likely, in 2001 to work on the project. Dr. Likely, who is not with us this afternoon, is chairman and professor of history and philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Bruce Carveth, who will speak to us about Edward Coles' crusade against slavery. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. There we go. And I do sincerely appreciate this invitation and the opportunity to speak with you through the Banner Lecture Series. Um, my hope is that you'll discover in, in Edward Coles a new and special kind of hero in Virginia. His story, I think, is, is both inspiring and quite unique. But there's a second story, too, and it's wrapped inside this biography that has a particular significance for the VHS. So we'll hear that story, too. And the presentation then comes in two parts, the first of which is, as quick as I can make it, an overview of, of the life of Edward Coles. Because I imagine there are a, a, a number of you who don't really know very much about this fellow, and we need to sort of give you the overview. The second part is the poignant story of his son, Robert's Coles. That last part is by way of celebrating the great gift that the Virginia Historical Society makes to all of us in preserving Virginia history. In particular, I'll be referring in that part to a tiny scrap of paper that's somewhat smudged, a handwritten note in pencil, a tattered little private document in the collection here at VHS, almost lost within the wealth of great papers among significant men and women. Out of context, this scruffy little paper will have a passing interest, but its meaning comes alive if you know the story. And it was among my very favorite discoveries during the writing process. So this presentation is partly a thank you to you, the VHS, for what you're doing. Two stories, and I hope you like them both. Edward Coles was uh, born on the 15th of December, 1786, at Enniscorthy, a family plantation located about 45 miles west of Richmond, close to Scottsville, Virginia. And here is an elevation that shows you 
how Enniscorthy is located on the Southwest Mountain, along with other major plantations like Montpelier, Monticello, and Ash Lawn. His immediate family was distinguished and wealthy at a time when tobacco, land, and slavery made Virginia an economically and politically powerful state. His relatives included second cousin Dolly Madison, who was the sister, uh, uh, the sister of his father, was Dolly's mother, and third cousin Patrick Henry, a nephew uh, of his grandfather. So Edward's early schooling happened primarily at home under the direction of tutors, later at schools located on neighboring plantations. He attended Hampton-Sydney College for one semester and then transferred to the College of William and Mary in 1805. Edward absorbed enlightenment ideals from one of America's leading scientists and advocates of Republican theories of government, the Reverend James Madison, who was president of the college, he was the first bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia and the second cousin to the future president. As a result of discussions held with Bishop Madison in 1806 and 1807, Edward developed a conviction that slavery was not only a great moral wrong, but also a great threat to the American Republic due to its violence to universal human rights, which is a foundation of the public compact. So at the age of 21 years, he determined not to own slaves and not to live where slavery was accepted. John Coles II, Edward's father, passed away in the winter of 1808. And by his will, Edward received a plantation of 782 acres called the Rockfish Plantation, located in what is now Nelson County, Virginia, plus a dozen slaves. The original plantation building still exists, believe it or not, and still functions as a dwelling, um, even, at, even at this day. The announcement of his intention to free his slaves was greeted by his family and friends with strong resistance. And consider this. He kept his views about slavery to himself thereby ensuring that he would receive a proper share of the family slaves and would be afforded the opportunity to give them liberty. If they had known his views, they would surely have swapped the slaves for land. But he kept it to himself. The intentionality of Edward Coles, the scheme to ensure that he received slaves expressly to free them, is one thing that kind of sets him apart from other manumitters. Edward Coles was invited to join the White House staff, replacing his older brother, Isaac Coles, as secretary to the president in early 1810. The appoint, appoint, both appointments were uh, the natural result of close family relations between the Coles and Madison families. During his tenure in the White House, that is to say 1810 to 1815, Coles managed a large share of the presidential correspondence, handled patronage, provided political intelligence, and undertook special projects. He was a slave owner throughout, struggling with various practical barriers to manumission. Don't make the mistake of believing that giving freedom was a simple matter of putting pen to paper. There were legal, moral, and practical difficulties inherent in freeing African-American slaves 
and Edward Coles became an expert in all of them. During his time in the White House, he pressed Thomas Jefferson by letter in 1814 to lead a public movement towards statewide emancipation. Jefferson's elaborate rejection of Cole's plea makes the plain the contradictions that inhabit Jefferson's stances on slavery, race, and human rights. Curiously, the interchange, disappointing as it was to Cole's, may have added steel to Cole's resolve to take action on his own behalf in freeing his own slaves. Coles left the White House in 1815, shortly after President Madison signed the Treaty of Ghent, ending the War of 1812. In June of 1815, Coles traveled in search of Western lands, where he could free his slaves and settle, finding Illinois the least unsatisfactory place to pin his hopes and plans for the future. But the following year, after returning from his Western tour, Coles was enlisted by President Madison to complete a mission to Russia in order to straighten out a minor diplomatic misunderstanding. So Coles returns to America in the fall of 1817. Thereupon, he completed the sale of his rockfish plantation to his eldest brother, Walter Coles, providing him with the funds and allowing him to make concrete plans for his manumission project. Coles made a second reconnaissance trip to Illinois uh, from the spring through the winter of 1818 and, by the way, participated in the state's first constitutional convention at Kaskaskia. And finally, in the spring of 1819, Coles gathered his 19 slaves at his rockfish plantation and invited them to join his proposed move to Illinois. Under a commitment he had made to his family, the, the slaves were not told of his intention to free them. The family feared that knowledge of Edward's plan would spread an unhealthy virus of hope among the other family slaves. All of the slaves agreed to move with him, however, with the exception of two elderly women who had husbands that were owned by other members of the Coles family and whose circumstances made the move very difficult. And Coles also uh, purchased the remainder of an indenture of one man in order to keep a family together in the face of the planned move to Illinois. So Edward Coles' 17 slaves, six adults and 11 children, left the rockfish plantation outfitted with papers, a wagon, horses, and various provisions and money on Thursday, the 1st of April, 1819. Coles left, left separately. His first stop was the town of Milton, which doesn't exist anymore, but used to be just east of Charlottesville. And next he went to Montpelier for a farewell to the Madisons. He caught up with his party at Brownsville, Pennsylvania, where he purchased two flatboats for the journey down the Monongahela and Ohio rivers. And a few miles west of Pittsburgh, Coles gathered his slaves upon the flatboats and made a simple statement to them, granting their immediate freedom. A mural now hangs in the uh, Illinois State Capitol that commemorates this dramatic event. The effect of this announcement was both astonishment and jubilation from the newly freed party who 
tearfully offered pledges of affection and expressed concern for Cole's financial survival. In response, however, he asserted his support for them and announced that he would provide each of the three main families with land as a gift to help them in their new lives and in recognition of the work that they had done for him at the Rockfish Plantation. Well, the party disembarked the boats at about Louisville, Kentucky, and traveled overland to Edwardsville, Illinois, arriving in early May 1819. During the next two years, Coles worked as Register of Lands from Edwardsville, a position granted to him by now President James Monroe. He supported the newly freed families, purchased and conveyed the land parcels as promised, and he developed his own prairie land farm just east of Edwardsville. This is a modern map of Edwardsville showing the approximate location of Edward Cole's own property, the Prairie Land Farm, um, including the unnamed one uh, up in the uh, top left-hand corner there, and also the properties that were given to, uh, to other members of his, uh, of his now freed group. In October 1821, Coles entered the Illinois gubernatorial race. He was elected by a very thin margin and became Illinois' second governor on the 5th of December, 1822. His inaugural address focused on internal improvements, farming, and education, but it also called for an end to slavery in a state where slavery was a persistent, if shadowy, institution. In reaction to this abrupt proposal, a pro-slavery faction in the Illinois legislature called for a constitutional convention, the unstated purpose of which was to fully legalize slavery in the state. Through twisted and entirely improper procedures that I think you'll find quite entertaining if you read the story, the pro-slavery faction managed to force a bill through the legislature calling for a referendum to authorize this constitutional convention. And during the next 18 months, Illinois was caught up in a passionate, divisive, and even violent political struggle. To defeat the call for the convention, Edward Coles contributed the entirety of his income as governor. He purchased a newspaper to promote the anti-slavery cause, and he led the elaborate organization of county-level committees to oppose the pro-slavery effort. Among the tactics adopted by the pro-convention faction was a civil suit brought against Coles that spuriously and absurdly accused him of freeing his slaves without posting a necessary state bond. And this, these are some of the documents, this, uh, the uh, uh, verdict on the one side and the summons on the other. The call for a constitutional convention was defeated in the election of 1824, due both to the opposition from Illinois churches and to the leadership of Governor Coles. And Coles finally was vindicated in the private suit by the Supreme Court of Illinois in the spring of 1826. Coles' term as governor ended in 1826 too. The Constitution of Illinois precluded a second term at that time. So he ran for the U.S. Senate in 1831, but was defeated. So he decided to leave Illinois for Philadelphia. And there he married Sally Logan Roberts and raised a family. Also at this time, he began correspondence with various people, including Thomas Jefferson Randolph, Thomas Jefferson's grandson, successfully encouraging him to oppose slavery during the 1831 slavery debate 
in the Virginia legislature. Coles also conferred, conferred with the aging James Madison on a plan to emancipate Madison's slaves by his will. Cole's belief that Madison would take a personal stand against slavery by freeing his slaves met with bitter disappointment when Madison's will passed the slaves to his cousin, Dolly Madison. In the end, of course, not one of the Madison slaves was freed. Cole's attempted over many years to uncover the reasons why Madison had failed to free his slaves in his will and why none of the family slaves was ever freed. And he came to recognize that James Madison held the comfort of his wife and the preservation of her assets as his top priority. He also came to lay the overall failure to free the Madison slaves at the feet of his cousin, Dolly Madison. And I'll be presenting details on that story at Montpelier in two weeks' time. During his declining years in Philadelphia, Everett Coles became known as one of the few remaining people with direct personal connections to the Founding Fathers. He provided advice and anecdotes to biographers, burnishing the reputations of Madison and Jefferson as champions of freedom, and specifically je uh, defended Jefferson as the author of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 through the publication of a, monogram on the, uh, a monograph on the subject. Edward Coles passed away on July the 7th, 1868. And I'll, I'll do a summing up of, of the meaning of his life in the context of, uh, of, of uh, the emancipation work that he did th throughout his life at the end of this presentation. But, but I want to turn now to story number two about his son, Roberts Coles. So as I mentioned earlier, Edward Coles married Sally Logan Roberts in Philadelphia, and this happened on the 28th of November, 1833. Three Coles children grew to adulthood in a family life, bathed in affection, constantly reinforced by family associations that reached all the way from Philadelphia to central Virginia and beyond. The Mary Coles was the eldest, followed by Edward Coles Jr., and the youngest was Roberts. In time, it was Roberts who would introduce a dark and tragic cloud into the sweet harmonies of domestic life in Philadelphia. As he grew to maturity, and with the benefit of annual vacations in Virginia, Roberts was drawn to the land and people and romance of the life his father had rejected. At the age of 21, he broke away from the confines of family in Philadelphia to embrace the plantation life that his father had turned his back on. Roberts had been drawn to Albemarle County for some years and could not ignore the siren call of the, the beautiful mountains uh, and, and his heritage and the romance of his southern pedigree. In 1860, Roberts left home for Albemarle County. Roberts' co uh, cousin, Tucker Skipwith Coles, gave him a start by selling him largely on credit a 900-acre property with a small house right by the rest of the family plantations. The deed, registered in April of 1860, was the fulfillment of a romantic desire. It held the promise of an auspicious future steeped in the genteel and, well, respectable culture of Virginia's aristocracy. Tucker Coles began, began the construction of a new dwelling house in the southern part of the property 
on a hill overlooking the Beaver, uh, Beaver Dam Creek. And Roberts put down these roots, and still they were not quite enough. He met and fell in love with Jeannie C. Fairfax. He lost his heart completely, and they became engaged. The Civil War broke out on the 12th of April, 1861. It was just a year since Roberts Coles had become a bona fide Virginian. Would he return to the bosom of his father in Philadelphia or spend the war in Virginia? Unreferenced sources indicate that Edward Coles pleaded with his son not to support the Confederacy. But Roberts did opt to support it. He mustered into the 46th Albemarle Infantry, Company I, the Green Mountain Grays, on the 16th of July, 1861, and he kept this from his parents. Some 90 men from Albemarle, Fluvanna, Amherst, and Nelson counties gathered that day at the old African church close to Carter's Bridge at the very foot of the southwest mountain and scarcely a stone's throw away from his own front porch at his new plantation. They gathered to sign up for a one-year tour of duty, and Roberts was elected captain. The Green Mountain Grays fell under the command of Brigadier General Henry Wise, whose 2,700 men were at the time dug in behind breastworks at Tyler Mountain, not far from Charleston in western Virginia, now, of course, West Virginia. Wise had been a member of the U.S. House of Representatives as a Jacksonian Democrat from 1833 to 1844. He'd been a minister to Brazil for a short time and served as governor of Virginia, of course, from 1856 to 1860. And the final act of his administration had been the execution of John Brown. He was without military experience, but passionate about the Confederate cause and was appointed more for political reasons than for proven ability. In August, Captain Roberts Coles and the Green Mountain Grays left their bivouac by Carter's Bridge and made their way to Charlottesville, where a train took them west as far as the Jackson River. They marched then to White Sulphur Springs, where they joined up with Brigadier General Henry Wise and other newly recruited companies of the Wise Brigade. The regiment learned that it was being recalled to Richmond, and the 46th marched to Salem and then moved by rail to Norfolk. Orders soon bade them move south to Albemarle Sound. They camped for two weeks at Nags Head in the vicinity of a strategic but neglected Confederate position on the North Carolina coast. Captain Roberts Coles and the Green Mountain Grays, together with the other companies of the 46th, remained at Nags Head, located across the, uh, the inland channel from the northern point of Roanoke Island, a reserve for the main defensive unit on the island. Roanoke Island controlled the entrance to Albemarle Sound and points inland. Despite its strategic importance in controlling the water approach to Richmond, little attention had been expended on Roanoke Island by the Confederacy. Three small fortifications had been erected, protected by a few small cannon and defended by five small gunboats and a minor hatchery of untrained and unpaid troops, some 2,500. Early in February, Union Brigadier General Ambrose Everett Burnside, the battle-hardened commander of the newly commissioned North Carolina Expeditionary Corps, dramatically referred to in the newspapers as the Burnside Expedition, steamed into Pamlico Sound with his Union expedition of three brigades and some 27 ships carrying a force of 7,500 men. 
On February the 6th, Burnside sat comfortably on the south side of Roanoke Island. Wise had been struck with pneumonia and fever and lay bedridden at Nags Head. At 10 a.m. on the morning of February the 7th, Company A under Captain Obadiah J. Wise, son of the infirmed Brigadier General, and Company I under Captain Roberts Coles were towed by steam from Nags Head to Roanoke Island. And as the boat splashed through the sound, Coles quickly scratched a note in pencil on a torn sheet of paper to his fiancée, Miss Jeannie Fairfax, Miss Jeannie Fairchild, Clifton House, Richmond. I don't know if you can see this, but it's a photocopy of a little scrap of paper that's downstairs. Let me read it to you. On board transport, February 7th, the battle has commenced. In five minutes, we'll be on Roanoke Island. The light is beautiful. Our gunboats and batteries are, engaged, are engaging the enemy in full view, and the shot and shell are whistling around us. If I fall, God grant you a happy life, as happy a one as, as I would have tried to have made it. Be assured my last thoughts on earth will be of you, my dearest Jenny. Your picture will be the last sight I shall see if time is given me to look upon it once more. I volunteered for this service. What honor I crave is only craved that you may share it. May God bless you, and may we meet in the world to come if denied that blessing again here. And now I strike for Virginia. Again, goodbye. Yours forever, Roberts Coles. I have but the moment to write. The shells fly thick. And that's the title of my next book, actually. <laughs> it'll be directed to young adults, and it'll cover the story of Roberts Coles, the Confederate soldier, and of his father, Governor Edward Coles, the Virginia champion of emancipation. So the towed boat landed at the northern point of the island. They struggled through the swamps on the island's northern portion to join their comrades at about 6 p.m., forming a defensive line at a clearing near the middle of the ruddy and primitive island. Company I moved to the right flank, A to the left, a steady rain fell that night, and the men slept in shifts as best they could. At 7 a.m. the next morning, Burnside began his march on the redoubts. Firing commenced at the 23rd and 27th Massachusetts uh, as they emerged through the woods on the southern side of the battlefield's open clearing. And in short order, the musket balls from the Massachusetts regulars were joined by grape. Captain Wise was wounded in the wrist, and while bandaging himself, and pleading to his subordinates that the wound was but trifling, a ball caught him full in the breast. The Federals were held off for three hours as Burnside tried repeatedly to turn the flanks. The right flank was finally breached at about noon. The Yankee line charged ahead, and Captain Roberts Coles took a bullet in the chest. He was killed on the spot. With the Federals at the quick charge and the Confederate line squeezed against the northern shore, the island was quickly lost. In all, about 2,500 Confederate soldiers were captured, 22 were killed, 62 were missing. Roanoke Island was in the hands of the Union forces, and prisoners were marched to the Yankee camp that evening. On the 15th of February, 
A complete review of the battle appeared on, the page, on page five of the Philadelphia Daily Evening Bulletin by a New York Times correspondent. He described the geography, the disposition of the troops. He went over the movements of the ships as they threaded their way between Roanoke Island and the mainland. He reported on the commencement of the battle on the 7th of February and troop movements the next morning and, and taking the, forts, uh, the taking of the forts and the resistance felt by the federal troops. He turned, told about the turning of the tide at noon and the final capture of the rebel army. And then he reported on the aftermath. On the third column, midway down the same page, let me read to you what he wrote. At the right of the battery, scattered over the field were several rebel officers and soldiers, their bodies still warm, the lifeblood oozing from their ghastly wounds. Among these, I came upon one officer who lay there near a tree where he had fallen, pierced by a bullet in the left breast. His long, pale features, which were calm as those of a person asleep, indicated more than ordinary character, and his dark hazel eyes, still left uh, half open, bespoke intelligence not often met with on the field. He was plainly but neatly dressed, though without anything like a uniform to indicate his rank. I thought of the parents of this rash, misguided man, and though I had no clue to his identity, could not resist a desire to remove a lock of his hair as a memento. Soon afterwards, I met a prisoner of the person of Dr. Walter, Cor the, uh, of the person of Dr. Walter Coles, who was in search of Captain Coles of the Wise Legion. I showed him the body, which he identified as that of his cousin. And he stated that his parents resided in Philadelphia. Several others of the rebel dead lay on the field. So Roberts Coles was buried in the family cemetery at Enniscorthy, surrounded by graves of the family that had so captured his devotion. In about 1895, his sister, Mary, moved his remains to Philadelphia, where they were reinterred in the Woodland Cemetery. And Roberts now lies beside his mother, and next to her is his father, Governor Edward Coles. The plantation, the farm begun by Roberts Coles, went to Tucker Coles' brother, Peyton, which was a term of Roberts' will. After the end of the war, Peyton Coles conveyed the property back to his brother in payment of part of the deed of trust held by Tucker for the property. Also, an outstanding deed of trust was in existence in the amount of $5,000, which was paid by Edward Coles Sr. The empty plantation house on the little hill overlooking the Beaver Dam Creek decayed, and eventually the remains were just hauled away. So here's a story that's heavy with irony and tragedy. The father, Edward Coles, sets principle above all, rejecting slavery, uh, rejecting Virginia as a slaveholding state, freeing his slaves at great personal cost, and devoting much of his life to the ending of slavery. The son, Roberts Coles, places love of family and heritage at the center of his life, ultimately fighting in the Civil War to retain the right to hold slaves. So back to the life of Edward Coles. What was his significance? Edward Coles was certainly not unique in giving freedom to slaves. Many Virginians did. 
What sets him apart was the age at which he decided not to hold slaves, the reasons why and the steps he took to ensure that he would have the opportunity to free slaves. Consider the person who has freed slaves by their will. The decision comes in most cases late in life, after the value of the slave has been consumed and the cost is borne by the heirs. Edward Coles is not doing this. He schemes to become a slave owner expressly so he can give freedom at a personal cost of about a third of his total net worth. And it was given when he was young. As a matter of morality, this kind of sets him apart. In a broader historical sense, his efforts to end slavery in Illinois set that stage on a slow transition toward greater racial freedom. His contribution was in standing firmly against the tide towards slavery in Illinois. But his leadership was decisive in this. Frank O. Loudon, who was the governor of Illinois, 1917 to 1921, introduced the reissue of the first published biography of Edward Coles with a personal assessment of the significance of Coles' life. Had Coles not stopped a nefarious effort to put slavery into Illinois' constitution, Loudon believed Illinois would have become a slave state. The great debates between Lincoln and Douglas would not have occurred. Lincoln would not have become president. I'm quoting now. Indeed, with Illinois a slave state, Loudon went on, it's altogether possible that the Confederacy might have won. So here we have Edward Coles as the driver of the outcome of the Civil War. Well, I don't think so. This is hyperbole. For me, the significance of Edward Coles and his stand for freedom is the demonstration of an enduring truth of one Republican belief. That justice is not the exclusive product of the great men of history. It is very often the product of great citizens. Thank you. I believe we have an opportunity for questions if anyone has uh, additional Did items they'd like Edward to hear. Edward Coles, after he left Illinois uh, and moved to Pennsylvania, did he keep his fingers in the anti-slavery politics of the day? Well, you might, have, you might imagine that he would uh, join, you know, Philadelphia, of course, was a, a major uh, source of resistance to slavery throughout the nation. I'm not aware of any specific um, evidence that he uh, did so in a collective way. Um, as I mentioned, he was in touch by letter with uh, Thomas Jefferson Randolph and James Madison. Um, he's reputed to have joined the American Colonization Society, but there's no direct evidence of that either. So I, think, I don't think that he kept his hands in the, um, the public efforts to end slavery in, in the U.S. I think he handled it entirely in a, as a private matter. What became of the slaves in Illinois that he freed? Great. Good question, and thank you. Um, I'm, I'm actually very proud of the extent to which we were able to uncover that story. Um, the, the slaves, first of all, were, were made up of a number of families, but the main family was a family of Crawfords. 
and Ralph Crawford, I'll just go through a few little items here. Ralph Crawford had belonged to the family for a long time, was very trusted, and had made one of the two trips that Everett Coles made out to the West with him. So he had kind of an inkling that something was going to happen. And it was he who was really hungry to have some land and was more thrilled with the receipt of land uh, than, uh, than with uh, obtaining freedom, really. I mean, this was, this was just a dream come true for him. Uh, he actually never came into direct possession of the land that he really wanted. He passed away of yellow fever in September of the same year that they arrived. Um, his uh, sister, uh, Kate Crawford, continued to work for Edward Coles. Um, and um, uh, Robert Crawford, uh, his bro uh, Ralph's brother, uh, turned into an outstanding preacher who drew uh, uh, crowds of both white and black um, enthusiasts to church um, from very lar large distances away. Um, he was also uh, instrumental in the formation of an organization in Western Illinois that became uh, the, the basis for the, uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, which, uh, of course, is ongoing. And the organization that uh, he was instrumental in forming is now the oldest uh, ongoing uh, uh, African-American organization in the country of any sort. It happens to be a Baptist organization, but it's still ongoing out there. And uh, he played a minor role, but, it, but meaningful. Um, and so that was, uh, that was Robert Crawford. Uh, there was uh, another man in the group who passed away, um, and uh, one or two people who we didn't really find out very much about. But uh, the stories of the slaves are uh, interwoven throughout the entire narrative about the life of Edward Coles. Um, and there's, there's, there's quite a bit there, I'm, I'm proud to say. And part of the reason why the information was available to us is that they're contained in court records having to do with uh, the supposed failure of Edward Coles to uh, provide a bond when he freed the slaves. And so that whole court record is available with the names and ages and descriptions. And then, of course, there's a certain amount of correspondence that went between Edward Coles and especially Robert Crawford, uh, who he considered to be the great success of his of his emancipation project. Yes? When uh, Coles made the trek from Virginia to Illinois, yeah. uh, besides the slaves, uh, you know, what kind of help did he have? Did he have family with him, overseers? Any information on that? No, it was, it was, it was just he. In fact, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he sent the, the slaves at the time as a party of their own with money, horses, papers, food and provisions, tools, everything that they needed. Um, and his brother, John uh, Coles, had said, well, that's the most foolish thing you could possibly have done because you know what they're going to do. He says, they're going to take that stuff and run. Well, they didn't. And Coles took tremendous pleasure when he arrived in Brownsville and found them there of writing to his brother. <laughs> you were wrong, buddy. So they were not accompanied. Uh, when traveling down the Ohio River, however, um, he had apparently made arrangements with a Mr. Green. Um, and we think this is part of the family of Nath Nathaniel Green of Green County and of Civil War fame, part of the, maybe a descendant, but we, we think so. We don't have any direct evidence. And then there was also a, uh, a riverboat captain who uh, Coles uh, contracted with um, on the boat on the Monongahela at Brownsville but he got rid of him at Pittsburgh. You know, it's not, a very, not very far from Brownsville to Pittsburgh uh, because um, he was taken to drink 
And so Coles did all of the piloting himself from then, and that man was gone. So that was basically all Coles um, on his own nickel. Since the um, plantation was called Ennis Cordy, yep. does that mean his ancestors came from Ireland? It does. Do you know what years roughly? Uh, it, his grandfather uh, came to Richmond uh, and uh, worked with William Byrd II uh, just as uh, the falls were beginning to show some economic value and because the plantations were moving upriver into the heart of uh, of Virginia, um, and so uh, his grandfather uh, came in, I believe it was uh, 1640, thereabouts, and was in, involved with uh, the, the growth and development of, uh, of Richmond. Uh, there, is, there is a story there. He was, in, uh, he was a member of the, um, uh, of the vestry of the old Curls Church. And uh, so there's, there's some story about early Richmond also in, in here, because that's where the family landed from Enniscorthy, Ireland. Thank you. Uh, roughly how much would an acre of land in Virginia or, uh, and or Illinois cost at that time when he was? Well, they weren't, weren't, they weren't sold by the acre. They were sold in, in Illinois at any rate. They were sold by the quarter section. Um, and uh, it was a matter of a, uh, a few dollars per acre, but then, of course, you have to, you know, add, uh, that's a lot of money in those days. And uh, they oftentimes, uh, Illinois went through some difficult economic times when people lost some of that land that was sold in, the, in, uh, in quarter section units. Did any of the land that the slaves received, does it ever stay in some of the family or descendants? Because when you describe, you know, what he gave? Well, don't picture that what happened was that they moved onto their farms and began productively to produce produce and to raise animals. To the best of my knowledge, not one of the three farms was ever actively farmed. They were retained as investments or essentially as property. Um, what happened to, uh, it mentions the, uh, one of the properties was owned by Kate Crawford. Uh, you remember that Ralph Crawford had passed away. It was passed on to her, it became her property. She worked for Edward Coles for quite a few years, mostly cooking and cleaning at the Prairie Land Farm. Um, and uh, Robert was managing the farm on behalf of Edward Coles, who was working in Edwardsville and later became governor, so he was not spending a whole lot of time there. But she made some money and, and put it away, and she bought herself her own farm and then sold the property that Edward Coles had provided to her and added to her farm. So that when Robert Crawford passed away, and we have a complete list of all of the objects that were in his possession at the time of his passing, it was quite, I think, a respectable um, and comfortable life that they were leading. Yeah. Do you have any information about whatever happened uh, to Robert's, Cole's wife and family? Not a bit. I'd love to follow up on that, but um, of course the line of interest for this is with the Coles family and this, this, uh, this uh, sort of dynamic between the father and the son 
uh, was what we really wanted to explore, but um, I would like to know some more details about, about Jeannie Fairfax. Do you have any information about what happened to Edward or what he did when he moved to Philadelphia? Well, um, for the most part, he owned uh, properties in Illinois and Missouri. Uh, in St. Louis in particular, he owned some downtown properties. Uh, those provided him with income. He also, when he went out in 1815, purchased a fairly large block of land together with his brother Isaac um, and possibly others in the, in the family that I don't know, but I do know that he was essentially in business with his brother Isaac. And so through the sale of those properties over time and from the income from those properties, um, he was able to uh, manage himself reasonably well. Uh, he did ho hold railroad stock as well. So when the railroads went, went badly in uh, the 1830s, he, put in, he found himself, I guess it was the 1840s, he found himself in a position where his um, income uh, was not satisfactory for the raising of children, and he tried to get a job but was unsuccessful. Uh, he lived right across the road from the, from the Mint in Philadelphia, and he thought that being uh, attached to the Mint would, would be a, a great thing. Um, but that did not, the application for that sort of thing did not go well, and uh, so he was never really employed. He simply used the income from his lands and properties to, uh, he also uh, got the, um, uh, the property of his wife's father, Hugh Roberts, who was a very wealthy, well-known, and long-established family in Philadelphia, and so that added some wealth to the family's wherewithal. Yes. Was the rockfish property today's Monte Cola? I'm sorry, could you repeat the, the last part? Was the rockfish property today's Monte Cola there in Albemarle? I'm not uh, familiar with that. Well, can you uh, more closely locate the rockfish property? Yes, it's in, it's in the community of Greenwood. If you take the uh, Highway 151 from uh, 250, about six miles, you'll find a tiny little road called Coles Lane, and it's right there. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it's the house itself sits on a spur uh, that overlooks a, a beautiful valley, all of which was part of that, uh, it was river bottom, all of which was part of that, uh, that operation. Um, they kept horses uh, and cattle to a certain degree. Uh, they grew Timothy. Um, they had uh, apples. Um, it was uh, very much a, uh, a full cash crop operation, um, as well as it being a, uh, a, a, a partly a horse breeding operation. Um, it's also fair to say that it didn't make a whole lot of money because um, Edward Coles was saddled with a $500 debt upon his father's uh, passing. In addition to receiving the land and the slaves, he also got a debt. He was never able to pay that off be it through the, um, uh, the income from the, from the rockfish plantation um, uh, until he, his brother finally relented and purchased the property from him. Then he had the cash to pay it down. I thought that the uh, Northwest Ordinance decreed that there would never be slavery in the area where Illinois was formed. How, do, how were they going to get around that? Oh, boy, they got around that. 
You're, you're absolutely right, and that was Edward Cole's reason for standing up for Thomas Jefferson's authorship of the uh, Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Uh, but um, consider that uh, the French had brought slaves into Illinois as part of their trapping operation. And when Illinois was conveyed from the French to the English, the treaty said the property shall be conveyed as well. Well, what's that mean? And when the, uh, when the English conveyed Illinois uh, from, uh, or the Northwest area uh, from, uh, to, to Virginia, uh, it was conveyed with the property, that the, the ownership of property shall remain. So what does that mean? So at each step, the, the people of Illinois uh, backed by their, um, uh, by their administrations, uh, supported these uh, treaties so long as the property was conveyed, and that meant the slaves. Well, it meant some of the slaves. The slaves that were originally owned by the French. People in Illinois felt very comfortable that their legal status was secure. And even interpretations from the courts tended to support that idea that, no, these properties were conveyed in these various deeds. So when the, uh, the Northwest Ordinance uh, is, becomes the law of the land, um, it also conveys property, right? So it's confusing. Our Edward Coles based a lot of his work in Illinois on the Northwest Ordinance. Um, and uh, the, those who were opposed to his view um, believed that slavery as it existed, as small as it was, and as shadowy as it was in Illinois, but as important as it was in the production of salt, was legitimate and legal. There you have it. Thank you very much. Oh. Well, were the people in the town that he lived in when he bought the land, were they aware that he was going to give it to slaves? Were they upset when they found out that he gave it to free blacks? I'm not, I'm not aware of anything like that. Um, there certainly were uh, whites who were uh, not sympathetic to this at all. Most of the town council were the ones who brought the, the, uh, uh, the case against Coles. You know, it was the town council of Edwardsville that did this. Um, uh, however, the area to the east of Edwardsville um, where the party settled became known as Pin Oaks. Um, and there's a lot of evidence in the historical record around it, at Edwardsville um, that that was a place where a lot of freed African Americans uh, went to settle. So it became a kind of an enclave, and of course they were not living in town. Um, there were racial tensions, as we all know, um, from the story of Elijah Lovejoy and others in Illinois. Um, it's not like it was a, a haven of, uh, of love and compatibility among the races, uh, but apparently uh, it was, I'm not aware of any particular issues that made life difficult for them in the, in the Edwardsville area. And in fact, they seem to have thrived. Bruce, thank you very, very much. Thank you.